This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Welcome to Plato's Cave, a 3RRR film criticism show. My name is Thomas Cordwell. I'm joined by Tara Judah, Josh Nelson and Cerise Howard. It's a full <laughs> cave of Plato-ness. Now on tonight's show, uh, we've actually got quite a diverse selection of films tonight. Some are exploring masculinity in crisis and others explore flawed men. Just for something different. We thought we'd bring gender into it, because we never do that. I know, men behaving badly. Apparently cinema can't get away from it. We sure as hell can't. We're going to begin with the working-class story of dogs, bars and organised crime in Brooklyn, New York, with The Drop. We're then going to head off to the mountains of Anatolia in Turkey for this year's Cannes Film Festival Palm Door-winning film Winter Sleep. This is a three-hour-plus examination of a privileged middle-class man who may not be the respected and well-liked person that he imagines himself to be. We're then going to finish the show with a look at a new DVD release. It, it's, it's, it's about a year old, this film, but it's just been released in Australia. A film called Start Up. This is a UK prison drama uh, featuring an estranged father and son. It was written by a former prison therapist. But first, let's get down and dirty with The Drop. Yeah, right. Well, the drop from director Mikhail Roskam. Uh, look, there are umlauts on that E. Your bits are off, but I'm going with Mikhail. Um, Brooklyn, Tom Hardy. He's Bob. He's a simple-seeming fellow, seemingly uh, of good, sound character, though possibly hangs out with some slightly dodgy types, like, for example, his cousin Marv, uh, who owns the business, this, this bar uh, in, I guess it's sort of the Badlands. It's a very masculine environment it's a very working class environment and it seems to have some regulars as i suppose bars of this ilk are wont to have uh at the very outset we we gather that bob is a a man of his people um he's shouting around to a whole bunch of people who it turns out are remembering quite fondly a friend of theirs of uh who passed away 10 years ago and, and probably passed away quite grimly and possibly in a grim fashion which uh may have something to do with some of the people who frequent this bar. This is um, a film in which, uh, you know, it's a very, very limited locale, um, a small-ish cast, and yet it's full of labyrinthine twists and turns. It all really gets set in motion with the discovery of a dog in a bin as Bob is on his way home, and uh, a very suspicious woman who uh, catches him retrieving the dog from a bin um, immediately takes down his particulars, a picture of him. You you sense very quickly this is a neighbourhood in which people uh, won't too expect the worst of their fellow human beings. But uh, soon things snowball, um, and surrounding it all is something we have explained in the opening salvo of this film, a little uh, voiceover from Bob, uh, in which we learn that all around town, certain bars, and you never know which one until the, the, the night itself, or generally most people don't, uh, function as dropping points where people um, in, of criminal persuasions will launder their money. Money will go in the building and will mysteriously go out the building and no one else will be any the wiser. Now, Bob and Cousin Marv seem to be uh, a little bit beholden to some Chechen um, baddies. A little bit of comic mileage is milked from their Chechenness because no one knows quite how to refer to people <laughs> from Chechnya. 
And one wonders if they weren't chosen to be of that particular national persuasion for the uh, a humorous misunderstanding a while ago surrounding those um, that, that marathon bombing where some Czech people were blamed by parts of the American public for um, having destroyed the marathon and everyone's American way of life. But in fact, it was uh, apparently some Chechens. Anywho, I, I wonder, because they're very careful these days in American films about who gets to be the baddies. Usually now it um, it was quite often you have to go back to being the British or aliens or uh, back to World War Two and the Nazis because everyone else is a bit too dangerous to tar with the baddie brush lately. Do you think in this case it's more an example of this is a neighbourhood where organised crime and gangs have traditionally been formed around immigrant groups Probably. and the Chechens are the latest? So it's sort of showing us this is the new threat that's coming to the neighbourhood. Yeah, possibly, but they still have some a bit of sport just to, uh, about how to actually even refer to these people so I, I do wonder if that's not just a slight I mean there's a little bit of a very dry wit in this film um, you know there's it's for a film that is basically quite low-key for much of it there, there is just a little bit of this sort of banter it's not at that Tarantino level of inanity of of, of um, you know of a particular form of inanity which let's call it a highbrow inanity if you like a totally postmodern deconstructive inanity uh, but there's yeah, a couple of times where the various characters are just needling one another a bit of badinage all very blokey um, um, but, you know, this is quite a nice little film with a few surprises, though I suspect the, the, the big surprise that should come towards the end isn't quite surprising enough to really wow anybody. But suffice it to say that in the course of the film there'll be a cross or a double cross or two and some people will prove to have hidden depths to their character. But along the way, I mean, I quite enjoyed this film. You guys? Yeah, I really enjoyed this film, actually. I think it's an incredibly slick, stylish uh, film that feels very familiar. I mean, this this type of crime, f- crime film set in Brooklyn with the sort of the familiar crime types, even opening with a voiceover, which reminded me straight away of Mean Streets and the character of Bob, played by Tom Hardy, spends his days in the church, but he never takes communion, which is noticed by a police officer who, or a detective who comes into the narrative later on in, in, a, very way, in a very similar way to that Mean Streets, this idea of you pay for your sins on the street and not in the church, which is exactly what Bob and some of the other characters in the film begin to do and their past catches up with them. So again, what I found interesting, and I just sort of to, to return to the point you made about um, the ethnicity of, of some of the characters, we do get this strange transition between that um, that Roman Catholic and that, that Irish Catholic um, guilt in the church, which is in and a really prominent element of those early, particularly Scorsese films set in Brooklyn and Manhattan and so on, to this idea of, of the Chechens and I think they use this idea of the Chechen mafia taking over to suggest that you know the good old the good old days have gone. There's almost a little bit of a nostalgia for for back in the day when when America like now it's now it's funny because you know in those films we had the racial tension between the Italians and the Irish and you know the, the kind of the white blood or you know white bred Americans and now there's this idea that the Irish and the Italian are the good old Americans and here we have been taken over by you know it's almost a Cold War throwback in many ways. Um, but what really for me elevates this film is the the performance as well. I think, you know, Tom Hardy is again sensational here in, in is a really understated role. He plays vulnerable as much as well as he, he plays extremely violent. And, and here you get a kind of a combination of the two, this idea of the simmering violent past just masked by a kind of a vulnerable silence. Um, Gandolfini as Cousin Marv is really good. And it, it's, it's tragic that this is his last film in the same way that I think... Um, uh, 
um, what was John Wayne's last film where he plays the oh, the shootist the shootist again uh, someone in there someone at f- fading glory type role yeah, yeah and that reminded me uh, the similarity there but I think uh, the one, uh, point I really wanted to kind of push here is the director is uh, really fascinating Mikhail Roskam uh, a film that I saw at MIF uh, two or three years ago Bullhead which I've been championing ever since because I watched on your advice yeah and I think it's a sensational yep. film and again it deals with uh a sort of a brutal form of masculinity, someone who's been hobbled, let's put it that way, from his past and is yeah. dealing with the sins of, of his past and you have this idea of the violent past about to erupt, which in that film was played by Matthias Schoenhertz, who's in this film in a very different role, in a very slender role, but opposite Tom Hardy, who have seen bulked up in things like The Dark Knight Rises and, and Bronson is quite a bizarre sort of coincidence given they're two very similar forms or have played similar forms of masculinity in the past. And I like the way it explores that and the relationship with the, the Numi Rapace character, the female character who um, Bob befriends with the dog, Thomas. And I think that's kind of the heart of the film, actually, is the relationship with the dog and how, you know, it, it's a pit bull and there's even a bit of dialogue where, you know, she explains these dogs have a bad name but it's not something intrinsic in them that makes them bad. It's the conditions they're brought up in. And that's a beautiful metaphor for, for Bob who seems like a really nice, humble guy who's probably quite lonely um, and desperately wanting some kind of human connection and, and happiness but because of the environment he's been brought up in, there is a... I don't want to give anything away, but I think the film makes it clear there's something simmering under the surface with Bob. He's not all that he seems. Uh, And I actually, I like the way the film built to the kind of the reveal of what he's capable of and what he's done in the past. I was actually quite shocked and surprised at the full extent of where it went with that. I, I found it quite satisfying. It's um, It's a really humble story and sort of... I hesitate to say a humble film, but I think it, you know, it's a very good film, but it's small. Everything about this is actually quite low-key. In a way, I found really satisfying. Yeah. It's sort of, it almost resembled really good TV drama, and I say that in the best possible possible way. It doesn't have any of the, the sort of grandosity of, say, The Departed, um, which it kind of reminded me of, and yet loads of other Scorsese films as well. I sort of saw a lot of this film about people living a life of, of denial, um, people who haven't accepted what has happened to to their reality. I mean, the thing with the Chechens coming in, it's not really challenge. That's just the way it is. They took over the bar ten years ago. They run the show now. Uncle Uncle Marvin, Bob, work for them. There is no question of who has the power, who has the upper hand. And yet Marv is convinced he's going to achieve the glory of his past. And there's a scene where we discover his father is brain dead, but he's, keep, he's paying an extraordinary amount of money to keep his father alive on this life support machine. He just can't reconcile the fact that the glory time of the past is over. You know, you've got this detective character who's obsessed with preserving the, the, the church and the fact that the church is going to get bought up and sold and turned into um, uh, a, a big condo, a series of apartment blocks. And he, he's very obsessed with rules. This detective is quite affronted that Bob won't take communion. You've got a character like Eric who is completely delusional, very much believes his own mythology and also... Um, yeah, a character like Tom, who's he's sort of he's trying to blot out the realities of his past. I think the only character who actually knows really what's going on in this film is Nadia. She's really the only pragmatic character. And, and, and interestingly, though, she's the character, I think, who has the most hope for a better future and can see the good in person and can see the potential for redemption. So, yeah, it's sort of a bizarrely humble film that nevertheless deals with some of the big themes. And, yeah, I, I thought this was just a really neat, tight, good little genre flick. And it, it, doesn't, um, it doesn't indulge its own sort of darkness... It 
at the end. I was a little bit surprised, and at first I found that quite jarring. The the end was a little bit tonally off what I was expecting, particularly in light of, say, a film like Bullhead. Mm. But in, in hindsight, I actually really appreciate it, and there's something that... that um, it struck me at the time, and it's almost been troubling me since, in, in a really good way. And that is, there's a line that's given to Bob towards the end. Um, it's like, you know, no one can see you coming, which I thought was a really clever and, and ambiguous line. But there's a moment at the end where we see Bob, and then we hear footsteps off screen, and it's it's such a kind of uh, a jolting sound effect that's subtle as well. It's not overplayed, but it could it, it leaves the ending with such a strange sort of sense of ambi- ambiguity in terms of what the future may hold. And I, I thought it's touches like. Like that, that Roscombe is is um, is really talented for. Well, stylistically, there's a lot of stuff like that. The, the film often has shots that feel like they're peering around behind buildings. This idea that they are being watched, maybe by rival gang, maybe by a loose cannon, maybe by a cop. A lot of shots are medium shots, so you've got one person in frame, and it looks like another person should be there with them. And I was quite impressed by how that creates this tension of when you've got the camera at that distance, but there's only one person in frame, it feels like at any moment someone's going to walk in and pull a club or a gun. Or, or, or a knife. I think it's really well shot in that regard. Yeah, it is. It is a tense, slightly claustrophobic little film. Certainly not uh, spreading the uh, the scenery far and wide. I mean, it really is quite concentrated in that little precinct, and that gives it that all that more paranoid a feel in a way. So there is there is definitely so, something to that. And I it's certainly Nomi replaces character. What did you say her name was? Um, Nadia. 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 Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, you see why she's so cautious. Um, and, of course, you learn that the people that she's hooked up with in the past, um, you know, one of whom is going to be a, another central figure in the narrative. Now, these aren't necessarily the best people, but uh, this is the big question of the film, too. How much are people a function of their environment? And um, and can you escape it? And can you outwit it? Can you uh, somehow find a way to better yourself and retain some degree of honour amongst thieves, you might say? I just wanted to pick up... One, one more thing, and that is, I don't think we've mentioned that this is based on a Dennis Lehane short story, which yep. he then later adapted. Yep. Um, and it's a point, actually, that you brought up on a, on a different station earlier today, Thomas, and I thought it was a really good one, and that is the the ear for dialogue, and that was something that really impressed me about yeah, this film. It, yeah. it has it doesn't feel like people are trying to put on like a Brooklyn swagger or a Brooklyn sort of style of, or you know, attempting to do an authentic Brooklyn. It just feels natural, and given the multicultural cast, where you've got people from Bel- Belgium, Sweden, Australia, the UK, um, it's pretty impressive that everyone comes off as feeling very much of this neighbourhood, of that area, and I thought that was something that's really impressive. Well, Tom, Tom Hardy does mumble, though. I mean, he gets. Uh, I mean, he mumbles with a probably quite authentic <laughs> accent, but it's, it's, not, just, it's not Bane mumbling. It's though, not quite so no, much. but um, nonetheless, yeah. that, that may have been quite strategic and wise. Well, approach. it suits the character, it does who, who's the character. something of an introvert. And look, just uh, you mentioned the Australian actor. I'd like to give a shout out to James Freshville. He's Australian. I think he's a Melbourne boy. He was the lead in Animal Kingdom, and he does pop up in a number of really important scenes in this film, opposite Gandolfini as well. And he holds his own with this entire cast. So, so yeah, Props. impressive. Well done. Three. Triple. Now here on Plato's Cave, we're going to take a look at Winter Sleep. This is the winner of this year's Palm Door Film at the Cannes International Film Festival. It's the latest film by the highly acclaimed and highly awarded... I don't think this guy can make a film without someone throwing a bunch of awards his way. He's a Turkish director named Nuri Bilge Ceylan. His previous film was Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, which we did 
cover on Plato's Cave back in the podcasting days, I think. Yeah, I believe we did. Although it, we, we covered his, it. Well, yeah. His other films were earlier than us. Oh, his other films were way earlier than <laughs> yeah. us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, they were great too. <laughs> I haven't seen anything other than this one and Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, but I believe Three they're pretty amazing. Three Monkeys will destroy you. It's one of the most devastatingly beautiful films I have ever seen, and Uzak is also incredible. It's oh. just like he's... A, Hit, hit for hit, each one. Yeah, well, okay. Well, let's look at Winter Sleep then, which is... Um, well, and I believe that what these films sort of have in common is that they tackle the big themes. It's you know, morality and mortality. Often they're set against these sweeping, vast regional landscapes. And we get that once again with Winter Sleep. You've got the very striking mountaintop region of Anatolia, uh, which is a region of Turkey. Although I thought... I was quite surprised by how much this is a domestic and interior film. You've got a handful of very striking external shots of this dramatic landscape, but this is mostly sort of shot-reverse-shot pattern-type dialogue. It's about a guy called Aidan. Uh, he's middle-aged. He's something of a minor celebrity. We find out he was once a, once a prolific actor. He now runs a hotel, and the film's set during the off-season, so there's just a handful of, sort of backpacker types drifting through. Um, he inherited the hotel from his father, and he's also the landlord of a bunch of other properties, many of which we discover are inhabited by locals who are struggling to pay the rent. And an interesting detail is Aidan uh, can't remember their names half of the time. He's always getting people mixed up and forgetting who they are. He writes a column for the local newspaper and he's developing a book on Turkish theatre. He's something of a Renaissance man, an intellectual type. Uh, He lives with a number of people, including his recently divorced sister, and she likes to have very long philosophical discussions about how... Uh, how not resisting evil is different from giving in to evil. Uh, He also lives with his younger wife, and it's a marriage that's clearly becoming quite strained. Now, over the course of this film, we discover this, you know, he is a man of privilege, power and prestige. He sees himself as somebody quite righteous and noble. Uh, But over the, the course of this very long film, he's gradually exposed as somebody quite arrogant and condescending, somewhat oblivious to the various forms of suffering that's being endured by the people around him. Look, at its most sophisticated, this is... I think quite a a striking film that looks at what it means to be charitable and to help others when that's really something you're doing out of self-interest and you end up running the risk of belittling the people you're meant to be helping. And before I I hand over to to you, Tara, I just want to mention I thought the most striking scene or sequence in this film is a moment where he imposes his, his great bookkeeping skills onto his wife's charitable work. And in this moment, he basically rips away from her the one thing that was her own, the one thing that she had to herself to work on, he removes. And it's one of the most devastating scenes I've seen in in recent cinema. It's a really powerful moment where she's just really shattered by this invasion into her her life, and he just seems to find it mildly amusing. Yeah, the character dynamics are really significantly great in this film. Uh, It is definitely a film that, for most people, will just be about what plays out between a couple of people uh, through conversation, but also, I think, largely through their 
their facial expressions um, and through the silences of the passages between when they're talking and how they're digesting what the other person has said. Um, there's an awful lot of philosophical contemplation through what they talk about um, and they always manage to bring that somewhere between um, a moral debate and an ethical debate and I think that, the, that there's there's always one character who's seeing it from the one perspective and another who's seeing it from the other perspective. Mm. So the, the kind of the difficulty of having any interaction with another human when one of you is concerned with issues of morality and self whereas the other one is looking at perhaps a broader, more general ethical contemplation of those same issues uh, really means that there can't be any common ground and that that's co- constantly what we see in this film. It, it's also really um, the contemplation of small things that escalate into very large things. Um, this is all sort of everything set in motion by a, a, a small event at the beginning of the film before we really get going, which m- might even seem to viewers at the beginning of the film as though this is inconsequential. A young boy throws a stone at a, a vehicle and it cracks the window. But this sets in motion a number of things and this brings about other tensions that have been just sort of simmering in the society um, below the ground. Now, what's interesting too visually about this film I think particularly when we do get a few of those sweeping vista shots before we spend most of the time indoors like you said Thomas is that we get the sense that the landscape is very natural and and barely touched I'm not going to say untouched because it it has been built into but the homes and the way of life has been built into the landscape the landscape is bare it it looks depressive but beautiful Mm. but it's it's a depraved landscape in a a sense and there's certainly a lot of depravity in this film people are are longing for things and wanting of things that they can't have for various reasons some of those are financial and socio-economical um they're to do with the the capitalist system in in which you know our lead character is essentially the bad guy although he's never painted as a bad guy he's also um very calm about all of the things that he does and even contemplates the people perhaps in a way that removes them from their humanity which is essentially one of the things that is an issue with his character um but what i really loved and i would like to talk briefly about is the way in which the camera work uh captures each of the characters and introduces us to who they are because at the beginning of the film it's very difficult to tell who we're supposed to think or who we might even want to think is in the right on who is in the wrong uh and the camera even when it does shot reverse shot is kind of at a skewed angle so it's not giving you pov so you never really have you don't really assume one character's point of view at any point in time um it it's always slightly off to the side of where they're standing so you 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 know that you're kind of not really aligned with their view but you're almost trying to see it from their viewpoint and then as we go on through the film one of the things that i really loved and noticed was that just as we think we know the character, the camera will kind of slowly zoom in, especially with our, our main protagonists, our sort of three main characters, um, the gentleman and his wife and his sister. And we get this slow close-up that we realise as we're getting closer and closer to their face that we don't really know them at all. We think we're getting a little bit closer to who they are, but actually everything is still as distant as it was before. Um, and and this, this happens a number of times until that amazing confrontation that you just talked about Thomas where he takes the one thing from his wife that she has of her own where the camera then really settles on the same distance between their faces and we're seeing them in the same version of a close-up um and and I think that that's that's the kind of frank 
impasse that this this film reaches where it's it suggests that this is as close as we're ever going to get this is as honest as it can be and there still can't be any understanding or seeing from another po- person's point of view well what do you make of uh it, it's, it's a very typical uh sort of camera position that this director uses there is a scene very close to the start of the film where we have our I, I guess he is our protagonist, Aiden, where it, the camera is very much aligned directly behind him. He's looking out the window across his domain, and the camera zooms into the back of his head. So, well, I think that on the one hand, it sort of sets him up as the protagonist, and we are sort of to a degree getting his view of the world, but it goes into the back of his head, not into yeah. his eyes. So there is sort of an unknown or, or, or murkiness, or possibly suggesting that we're going to see the inverse of what he sees, which is closer to the truth. Yeah, I think also it's a great it's point. It's a really striking shot, though, it isn't is. it? It is. It's an amazing image. And, it, I mean, it suggests, too, to me that there could be some attempt to get at the higher consciousness that he has, but I don't think we get there. But I think that mm. the, the camera wants to. It's trying to interrogate something that is very hard to get close to. Um, and particularly because this character, even though, like you said, he's sort of our protagonist, but we never really feel like... we. We know him because we can't get close enough. Even if the camera's right there with him, even if it's approaching him, even even in the car scene where the rock is being thrown at the car and we kind of see that from as if we were in the car with them, mm. it's still somehow not close enough, even when it's as close as it could possibly be. Well, we do, yeah, and we never really do get to know these characters, even though we spend an awful lot of time with them. And at the risk of steering this conversation into more prosaic territory, I do want to address the length of this film and many of the sequences. And look, this film, I've, I've read comparisons to the plays of Chekhov and, and to Shakespeare, uh, who are sort of your go-to guys for anything containing long passages of philosophical dialogue in a domestic setting. Mm. People have compared this to the later films of Ingmar uh, in, uh, Bergman, especially scenes of a marriage, for the same reason. But I... I feel that Chekhov, Shakespeare and Bergman are really good at creating extremely long works that take on big grand themes, but I feel there's a d- discipline and precision precision in their work which I felt was lacking in Winter Sleep, um, which is a film for me that was filled with so many fantastic scenes that all went on for about three times longer than they should. Now, I don't think it's the work of a sloppy director because this is one of those directors who clearly knows what he's doing and clearly the point is to make every scene go on for an extraordinary length of time, which I didn't mind in Once Upon a Time in Anatolia because we were looking at amazing landscapes. In, in this film, it's just shot, reverse shot conversation, which feels like it's going around and around in circles. Again, I know that's kind of the point. But this film really lost my goodwill at a lot of moments. Okay, yeah. Do you kind of see where I'm coming from? I, I understand what you're saying, but I really didn't feel that way at all. I mm. didn't have that problem uh, watching this film. I think that a lot of the conversational segments go for probably six or seven-ish minutes, which for most cinema is, is long, um, and, and most people would probably think that quite long. Uh, the, the reason I think it works, one, is because the where of where they are is 
somewhere that doesn't move. It's it's, it's like time almost <laughs> yeah. doesn't exist there. They've got the time for it. Yeah, I mean, you, you even can <laughs> yeah. see that. I mean, he runs a kind of type of bed and breakfast hotel, yep. and he has visitors to the hotel from elsewhere, and he talks to them in English. And one of his guests, you know, wants to ride a horse, and so his, it, which, you know, they saw on the website, and he doesn't have any horses there. So his idea is to hire someone, pay them to go and capture a wild horse, train it, and, you know, kind of make it a able to be ridden horse in, in a domestic environment and then he will you know show the guest that he has this horse but that process is like a couple of weeks you know in the mm. making it's not a it's not an overnight process it is surprising to him that his guest won't stay long enough for that to be a reality and that at, at you know at a later point in the film he has to abandon the idea of being able to tame something wild and to abandon the concept of being able to control the landscape it is as endless and timeless as it is there's not much he can do about that and and there is this sense i think of of their conversations do go around in circles you're absolutely right because they just can't find the common ground it's it's almost like this unstable place physically the geography of it seems unstable it can't really it doesn't really work for housing you know, it, it, it's unpleasing to the eye for him when other people don't clean up their yard and keep it in looking a certain way. This village has to be kept natural. They say constantly things like, we're going to slip down this drive because it's just muddy. You should put concrete. Oh, but it's not as authentic. And, you know, people don't like that. We've got, <laughs> yeah. to, we've got to keep the landscape as it is, despite the fact that it's literally working against us. And it's like that with their conversations. They, they can't make any progress, but there's nothing that they can do about it because that's kind of how it is. And so those, though, I think you're supposed to feel uncomfortable potentially even a little bit bored in those sequences because i think they are supposed to really wear on you as for how long they go for yeah it's succeeded i mean <laughs> but, but i think about you know a film like say force majeure which has a couple of great scenes that capture the idea of a conversation that should have stopped a long time ago and keeps going and i had no problem with that and i think it was just punchier and, and well it gives you humor to let you off the hook yeah that's true the the, the weird thing I, I thought of when watching this is the aiding character constantly talks about how proud he is of the fact he's never acted in a soap opera and he talks about mm. a soap opera a lot and at one point I thought this feels in a way like watching a huge block of half hour episodes of a soap opera back to back because it does feel padded quite deliberately the conversations do feel like they need to keep repeating to remind you of what the characters said five minutes ago to bring you up to speed and there are sort of characters and narrative arcs that introduce almost episodically into the film so it, it, it almost feels like very clear divisions between one thing finishes up and then we start the next thing um you know it's quite a relief when things like the horse story come when that comes back and it's quite a relief when they just go outside and show us that landscape which i think i was expecting yeah. I, this is a film where i'm really grappling with the fact that i, I found it really hard work to watch it and i almost resented watching it at points and yet i kind of recognize the skill and talent behind it it really wants you to do a lot of work this is not a film that you just sit and will be entertained by um i actually really think that you aren't meant to really like or warm to necessarily any of the characters in the film and i think that uh that Part of that is because of the systematic way in which they all feed into a very cyclical problem, which, like you mentioned, is frustrating and can be something that you don't want to spend necessarily as much time as 
the director wants you to spend. Winter sleep. It's uh, it's it's a unique work. I think we can we can. I loved it. I I, but and I also would highly recommend for anyone who sees this or has seen Once Upon a Time in Anatolia and is curious, do go back and see his earlier films. Three Monkeys is by far the hardest one. Mm -hmm. That's the most devastating. Hardest as in it's grueling what you see on screen, or that people have conversations that go on for twenty minutes about philosophy. (laughs) I'm I'm, going to let you watch it and tell me what you think. Uh, Winter sleep is only playing at Cinema Nova at the moment. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. Startup. Yeah, Startup, which as far as I'm aware hasn't had any cinema releasing Festival play. Festival yep. play. Um, I think it played in, in Canberra and at Sydney Film Festival. It played in Melbourne as well. And um, But for some reason has then gone on to go straight to DVD and I have completely missed it on the festival circuit, which I was now very upset about because i got to tell you, go out and get this DVD. What a film. Um, I was really surprised at how good this was. Um, and, and that's not necessarily to say that I had terrible... Um, I guess preconceptions going in. I didn't really have all that many. I just was blown away because I really think it is that good. Um, this is a prison drama, and it's a young guy basically is arrested. Goes he's he's a, he's underage essentially. Like he's he's not he's a young offender is what they refer to him as constantly a young offender. But he's in a maximum security prison with you know hardened adult male criminals Uh, and one of the things we learn quite quickly is that on his wing is his father is also incarcerated there and that that's something that i'm going to put to one side for now because i'm pretty sure that we'll come back to gender and you know fathers and all of that sort of regular plato's cave stuff um so we'll just put that to one side but basically what i really loved most about this film is not just how well it portrays uh, those cycles of incarceration incarceration and the problems of how uh, young offenders maybe struggle or don't want to or can't or whatever word you want to put there be rehabilitated and the issues that are involved in that and particularly the issues that are involved not just with the uh the kind of fathers of the of literal familial fathers but the fathers of the law the fathers of the system of the entire social order that's one of the things that is really great about this film another thing is the way in which it is visually explored this film's really a bit kind of disorienting at the beginning everything's mumbled the dialogue all you can hear is these loud creaks and echoes as he's being taken into the cell we can't really work out who he is what he's done why he's there there's so many questions at the beginning and the the place itself um we never get a good look at him for about probably six or seven minutes into the film the the way in which the sunlight floods into his cell constantly obscures our view of his face um so we don't know who we're getting close to or or what it is about him that we're going to get to know um then we really as the film continues on we've got this sense of this place that he's in it's incredibly yellow it's really almost like it's jaundiced like the place itself is suffering malnutrition that the place itself is is kind of wanting for some sort of life or minerals or something to be pumped into it and it's just completely lacking those things so we really get this sort of depraved sense of what's going on in the place even though you know that, that they have their own spaces and we get a vision at the beginning 
happening and for a little while that there are things in place to try and thwart anything untoward or not correct happening and um, that's where probably the references that will soon come up to Ghosts of the Civil Dead will come in because um, that's a film that I think this does evoke definitely Um, and for for me you know the Ghosts of the Civil Dead was fantastic when I finally got around to seeing it but this is also a really great film Um, and gritty I would say not really actually I think this film doesn't really go for that kind of overly gritty stuff I think it's quite realist in the way in which it portrays the characters Um, the way they speak and their their dialogue I think is really realistic Uh, I don't think that they that any of that is kind of labored or put about Um, and that there's one other scene that I I, want to mention before I throw it open to everyone else to to jump in on what they think but this film has this really great change it's got this kind of um this moment where things fracture and that's where we've got a a teacher or a sort of social worker in here who's doing everything that he does uh without pay for no personal financial gain just uh because he you know wants to work with these people he does have some of his own motivations and you find those out a little later but there's this moment where he's pushed too far and because there is this sense of everyone's being pushed too far further than whatever their limits are and there's this moment where he really gets pushed over that line and the the camera doesn't do a jump cut but it 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 breaks and cuts in the middle of that sequence and it's really interesting because we've already been looking at his face through a mirror so we've already got a sense of something reflecting and not really being the right point of view and then we get this really weird kind of jump in the camera work and it's from that point on that there's just this absolute break and he hands back uh, a type of authority and, and sense of control over who he is and from there the film really descends into all out brawling um, just this really fiery heat uh, is, is the only way I can really describe what it feels like to watch what then takes place in the rest of the film. Well it's that moment where the authority figures that have been in, in um, competition and competing throughout the film start to fight for what's left because they all sense that their power is slipping in various ways and one of the fascinating things about this film is its play on authority figures and the way you have the the biological father who hasn't been a part of his young son's life since the, since the kid was about five we, we hear later on in the film we have the therapy figure who initially seems like he's going to be the good father and it's going to be a very simple kind of good father bad father dichotomy and then we realize that this is a far more complex um system within this we have the the kind of the the boss the guy who's running the prison from the, within the prison the on the inside um and then because we, we have the corrupt warden so we have all these various um, authority figures, and throughout this is the is the theme of violence and rehabilitation, and and is anyone actually interested in rehabilitating these people, or is violence the kind of key thing that keeps the power structures together? And like you, Tara, I was super impressed with this film. Uh, I'm kind of shocked that it hasn't received a theatrical release. I would have loved to have seen it on a big screen as well. I think the performances, just from a really banal point of view, I think the performances are really striking. From Jack O'Connell, a young actor who I haven't really seen much of before ben mendelson is fantastic and rupert friend is really great as the as the therapist but this film in fact i'm going to have to say some similar things to what i um remarked about the drop this is a film that on a surface level feels like a familiar genre film the prison drama and we've seen a number of these and yet there's some really delicate touches in here which seem very different and remarkable and quite striking and one moment that really I thought was a fascinating exploration of of violence, sexuality and father-son relationships, which this film plays on um, quite overtly, is a moment where the son goes into his father's cell and the father's cellmate is there as well and we, we know that there's a relationship between the two of them. And there's a moment where the cellmate tries to interject 
in favour of the son and just puts his hand on Ben Mendelssohn's knee, the father, and just at that moment we know everything. The son realises what's actually going on. He starts to get a glimpse behind you know, his past of juvenile prison and now he's in the real, the real deal maximum security and he starts to see a different side of his father. And I thought the way in which the film explores that in very subtle ways without using dialogue, which then brings up issues of, of race and sexuality, almost a sexual rivalry between father and son where there's almost a sense of jealousy where, where the Mendelssohn character becomes jealous of his son dealing with not just the people within his therapy group but, but because, quite pointedly, they're black uh, inmates as well. And that was such a fascinating level on issues of race, issues of sexuality and sexual rivalry. Look, there's so much in here to talk about but that was just one thing that really struck me. Yeah, this film really packs it in. And look, even within that group, all the, the prisoners undergoing that strange therapeutic, um, those get-togethers, they, they even bicker amongst themselves about uh, race. Uh, you know, there's one conspicuously white young guy and four coloured gentlemen who all uh, see themselves as being quite distinct from one another and goad one another about how each of them historically has done one another terrible injustices and I think that's really fascinating, I haven't quite seen that before in a, a prison film or in terribly much cinema really now, this, this seemed a bit to me like a, a sort of a condensed um, episode from the great HBO series Oz which I adore this magnificent long form prison show that was perhaps HBO's first great triumph and which i adored and you now perhaps just couldn't run long enough to assume quite the machiavellian dimensions of that amazing show but on the other hand what it uh, perhaps lost in that sense it more than made up for an intensity this is one really intense film and it is brutal and there's this one uh, absolutely extraordinary scene where the the protagonist early on is just lashing out and he's he's uh, it happens many times in the course of the film. He's sort of back to the wall, which seems to be when he's at his absolutely most dangerous, and he attaches himself to one of his attackers, a, a, a cop, in a, a most sexually loaded and extraordinary fashion, which, again, is not something I have seen outside of Oz. Though it was, um, I don't even want to spoil this because it was so shocking and so, so um, uh, effective because it's just one of the most loaded images I've seen in cinema in a long time in terms of um, sexual, sexual domination, submission, um, uh, authority, and and how, how desperation will will drive people to just ex- absolutely extreme acts um, of self defence. And later, of course, we realise that um, you know, th- this is something that. We, we realise he's got a little bit of homophobia in him. We, we see when he sees, comes to understand how his dad has this relationship with his cellmate. But um, also, at the same time, desperation is exactly the currency in this place, and uh, he's, he's, he's pretty quick to adapt. Yeah, and also one of the things that I found really fascinating was that all, pretty much most of, except for Ben Mendelsohn, who's like the odd one out, an Australian doing quite a remarkably convincing uh, English accent is that all of the British stars are faces that you recognise from either small roles in British films or British TV dramas um, and so in a sense there's no huge British names like in those lead roles but they're all recognisable actors and they're, and I think because of that there's something almost given, they're almost afforded with an instant realism because you've seen them in these types of TV dramas before and you're, you recognise their faces but they're not people. They're not Ray Winston. No no, you don't attach them to that huge star persona, um, which I actually think is really important in a film like this because they have to be able to take on that every person from the street uh, that for you to believe who they are. And, and I think they're all totally believable in this film. 
We're probably going to run out of time, Thomas. Yeah, okay, I was going to wind you up. But that startup, which is, um, yeah, I've seen it as well, and it's, it's really great, but I think these the rest of the, the cave have <laughs> very much said everything that needs to be said about it at this point. That's, the startup is available on DVD and Blu-ray through Madman Entertainment. Uh, tonight we also looked at The Drop. That's sort of got a medium-sized release through 20th Century Fox. And Winter Sleep is currently screening at Cinema Nova through Sharmil Film. We'll all be back next week. You've been listening to Thomas, Tara, Josh and Cerise. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.